verse 25 through verse 27. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you with good memories that were here 2020, 2020 November 2020, 14 months ago, might have a, a sense of deja vu with this sermon. I know a few weeks ago when I started looking at preaching through this text, I had that sense. Uh, as a pastor, if you've ever preached or if you've ever preached not as a pastor... But as, if you've ever preached, you, you come to texts that you, you think sometimes, did I just preach on this text? You know, I'm going through Romans, so I should be safe. I should know where I'm preaching at or where I preach. But last 2020, in November, I preached a sermon uh, at the beginning of November, which was in reference to the five solas of the Reformation. And this is the text that I chose to preach on, because we can find... In these three verses, all of the five solas, at least implied teaching here, as we can in the first seven verses of chapter one of Romans, all five of the solas are there. And so it wasn't that long ago that I preached through this text. And yet this sermon that I'll bring to you today is not a copy of that, but there is bound to be some crossover. So if you're saying to yourself, I think I've heard this before. Well, first of all, I think if you're in church long enough, you should be hearing things over and over again. And that's not a bad thing altogether, as long as it's not just the pastor's rabbit trails and stories and things like that that you just hear over and over again. But if it's scripture, it's important that we do that, uh, that we rehearse over and over again this redemptive story. This is a doxology that we're confronted with at the end of Romans. Now, you might think, well, that seems fitting. Well, it is absolutely fitting, and yet it's unique at the same time. Maybe you didn't know this, but in all of Paul's other writings, he never ends any of them with a doxology. Paul never ends any of his other epistles with the doxology. Now, a doxology is a word of praise, and this is a liturgical form of a doxology, certainly one that is ought to be ascribed to a regular function of the church, liturgy. The, the regular function of worship in the church ought to be this sort of praise. And in fact, this is scripture giving us the right words to praise God with. And that's an important thing to remember when we come to this text. But rather, Paul usually, usually ends his epistles with Benedictions. Benedictions are words of blessing to those whom he's written to, including us. And so this is very unique. In fact, it's so unique that, which is not uncommon within the past 200 years, that many critics have said this doesn't belong to Romans, this doxology, because it's so unique, uh, it's so out of the ordinary for Paul to do that, that uh, it's funny how we paint people in certain boxes as if people can't do something other than what they've done 12 times before or so, so on. And, 
And this isn't even the last epistle that Paul wrote. And certainly we, we need to give leeway to the Holy Spirit as an instrument of inspiration, the instrument of inspiration as he inspires Paul to write. But I don't agree with that on assessment that this doesn't belong. I do believe it belongs, and I believe this doxology is fitting and appropriate for this epistle, this most systematic doctrinal epistle that Paul wrote. Most of the themes that we find in this doxology, we find in, in fact, all of the themes we find in the doxology, we find in this epistle, explicitly in this epistle. It seems like a very fitting way to end it then, to end as a means of praise, because what we find in the epistle of Romans is an epistle of praise. And Paul has often, at the end of Romans 11, chapter 9, verse 5, recently in chapter 15, he just, in the middle of his teaching, abounds with praise to God for what he's done. And so it's fitting that we end this way, isn't it? The force of this, what we will look at today, that what we find in here is a rehearsal, this doxology is a rehearsal of the doctrines that we have been taught, is a good reminder of what these doctrines ultimately abound to, the glory of God. You know, what we learn regarding the doctrine of salvation, as we'll see today, God has connected our salvation with his glory. And we need to understand that. And it needs to humble us. It needs to make in us worshipers. That God has bound what is rightfully his. All glory is his. And he has bound it to us in our salvation. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the means whereby God will receive glory from his people. It's the only means whereby sinners glorify God in accordance with their love, their will. Now, there is a sense where even the sinners who are judged finally as sinners in damnation and wrath of God that judgment will bring glory to God because justice is glorious. But for, for us who are saved, it's a joy. It's, it's the heartbeat. It's, it's our life to worship God because he has bound up his glory in our salvation. So first, and really the only main point this morning is we're just looking at the first part of verse 25, Praise to him who is able to strengthen us. This is what we'll read. This will be the only part of this epistle this morning that we'll really key in on. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Let us first see that the grace is given to us. Here is mentioned in this word strengthen. The grace given to us here are grounds for God's praise. Now to him we begin. And then verse 27 concludes, to the only wise God be glory. In truth, we ought to read in verse 25, glory to him. 
That's how it ought to come to our minds. When we read to him, we ought to supply the term glory. Glory to him who is able to strengthen you. As I just said, God has tied his own glory to what he has done and is able to do for us. In this aspect of praise, we are taught to give God praise immediately because it rests upon his ability. What we are beneficiaries of rests on his ability to give, namely to strengthen you. Nothing is more important in all of existence than the glory of God. John Piper wrote a book, God is the Gospel. And in that, he argues that the glory of God is what God is most concerned with himself. And if we're talking about human beings, we would, we would find that reprehensible. If you're talking about you and I, and all we lived for was our glory, we would not want to be around somebody like that. In fact, a lot of people in our culture are exactly living for that end. It's hard to be around such people because as soon as you cross them, that's it. I mean, you can't, you can't cross somebody who's living for their own glory and expect to be well-received, can you? Well, God is worthy of all glory. And he's right to have all glory be ascribed to him. And he's right to have that as his greatest end in himself is his glory because that glory means good for his creatures and his creation. The glory of God... Uh, again, I have to reference John Piper here because I think he summarizes the glory of God in a way that I've never really heard summarized, and it's been the most helpful way of summarizing it. He says, the glory of God, if God's holiness are, is God in all of his attributes, that God is totally, is, is holy unlike us in, in relationship to him, in his uncreatedness, and in his infinite uh, qualities. He's like us only in that he created us in his image and he relates to us in that sense. But his holiness is that he is separate, is distinct in his nature. His, his attributes are absolutely unique to himself in the sense that they are infinite in himself. And his glory is that he goes and displays them for us. His glory is the display of himself to us. And he's bound that up in our salvation. Here, in one instance that we'll consider this morning, it's in his strength, his strength, his power. God receives glory, secondly, because he is able. The text says he is able. The word Greek word is dunamai. We get dynamite from it. It's power. He is powerful. He is able, the text says. And so what follows our benefit, which follows, comes to us by God's power. Paul is in a long lineage of scriptural writers, of authors of scriptures, giving praise to God for his power. Psalm 21 says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. In your strength, the king rejoices. David is the king, and he says, it's your strength that I rejoice in. Oh, that we would have leaders that were humble before God, 
and who saw their right to rule as being given to them by God and not by themselves or their own greatness or even by the people merely. Be exalted, he says at the end of that psalm. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We, the congregation, will sing and praise your power. Scripture is clear that apart from God, we can do nothing. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. You know, we often look at the apostles and their disciples in the New Testament. These men casting out demons and and, uh, healing the sick and And Paul, if they just touched him, they would be healed of their diseases. And yet we we remember that they did such things in the name of Christ. Not in their own power. Not in their own name. Not in their own identity. But in the power of God. Christ told them, his disciples, and it certainly applies to us, that apart from him, you can do nothing And man's condition is not merely that we're flesh and blood and flesh and bone and and we're not as strong as we want to be. Everybody probably wants to be a little bit stronger than they are. I like to watch strong men, you know, those huge monster men. I mean, we were talking about big people yesterday. And these, one of the guys that I like to watch, he's an American and his name is Brian Shaw and he's 6'8", 440 pounds. And he's not a 6'8", 440-pound man who can't move. He's an athletic, strong guy that throws stuff around, and he wants to get stronger. He's not strong enough. And that's sort of the nature of us. You know, when, as we're growing up, we start to lose that strength that we have, and we want to be stronger. My son, Luther, who's, you know, this big, Every day he wants to be stronger and he wants to show us his muscles. And this is not the sort of strength that we're finding here. This is not even the strength that tyrants seek, more and more power. This is not the emergency order signing. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should have said that. This is not the leader who's just trying to get more and more influence because he's going to save everybody. Even, let's give them good intentions, right? Which C.S. Lewis says are the most dangerous sort of tyrants, the good intention tyrant. I'm not going to get off of that. But, but there's all sorts of power that we think is good for us to have. And, you know, Nietzsche said everything's about power, right? The philosopher, the atheist, says, that's all that life is, is we're a pursuit of power. And the people that have it, they're the most successful. And, and industry and systems have power, and we want to keep that power. All of that power is passing away. That's not what this power is concerned with. This is concerned with a very particular kind of power that has to do with a lack that all of us have. What is that lack? It's not that we get up in the morning and we can't lift as much weight as we used to. It's the kind of lack that Paul says in Romans 3, verse 9, that all of the world is under the condemnation of sin. That's where we lack. It's the kind that he talks about in Ephesians 2, that We're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's lack. Is that not lack? You're dead means you don't have ability, spiritually speaking, to relate to God. Jesus said no one can come to the Father. Can is a term of ability. No one has the ability to come to him unless 
I draw him. Unless he is drawn. And that is a, to be pulled up from a well by a rope. It's the pulling action. It's not merely a wooing action. It's strength that we need. It's not merely a helping hand. We, we don't have it in ourselves, is what he's saying there. We are children of disobedience, the scriptures says. That is, that's what we've learned. That's what we know. That's what we do. That's the pattern of our life. And that's our weakness. Spiritually, we have no strength in our natural condition. And so the great question is, how can we be saved? And this is the question that Paul has been concerned with since the beginning of Romans. And the answer here, very briefly, is that he is able. He is able. Third, strengthened by God unto salvation. Now to him who is able to strengthen. That term strengthen is sterizo. And I don't know, I... I didn't find this exactly. I, I'm guessing that's where we get the word steroids from. Now, if you go to the strongman stuff, they're, they're using that to get stronger, right? But he is able to strengthen or to establish you. Now, I argue that this is for salvation, but before I go there and assume that's what we're dealing with here, let's just consider this. This is righteous strength, at least. This is not strength that we can oppress or, or, or God is giving us some sort of strength to wield over the weak so that, that we can have them do what we want them to do merely because we're in a position of power. This isn't tyranny. This isn't oppression. This isn't despotism, human despotism. They do not have God to thank for their unrighteous rule in other words it's not what we're dealing with here this is a righteous strength this is a praiseworthy good strength so what is it strengthened what are we strengthened to what end i think it helps to see this strength in relationship with what paul says about it now to him who is able to strengthen you what does he say according to my gospel now that term my gospel is re repeated in romans in chapter 2 verse 16 now when you come to scripture, you want to make things as simply as you can, especially as preachers. Now, you might ask yourself, well, you don't do that very well. Uh, myself, I don't do that very well. And sometimes you don't know the half of it, what I'm fighting with what to say and what not to say. But I'm going to gloss over what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 16, which is that Jesus, my gospel there in that verse, has to do with judgment against the wicked. And I'm going to say that's not what we're praising God for here in his strength, according to Paul's gospel, my gospel. Now, my gospel means the gospel he's been entrusted with to go to the world, to preach Christ. Usually when we think of the gospel, we don't think of that as good news that brings judgment. And really, it shouldn't be that primarily in our mind. That's a bigger theological concern that we're not going to really deal with. But I want you to know in, that I'm being honest with you that that's there. That's part of the gospel, is that judgment lies in the hands of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that? I, I get depressed when I see 
the way we enact judgment in this world. We are very bad at it. We are very bad at enacting judgment in this world, and I'm glad it belongs to the Son of God, ultimately. He will do what's right. But in this context, when Paul says, according to my gospel, and then he says, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, which is not different from his gospel, if anything, it just means this is how the gospel is conveyed How will they hear without a preacher the gospel? But even that, the gospel preached is merely the the message from God concerning his son. So really, this is the same thing. Paul is saying the same thing. The gospel concerns Jesus Christ, and that is the message that preached. There is no gospel that is not proclaimed. You, You understand that? The gospel isn't for us to just put in the ground somewhere. The gospel is a message that is to be let out, proclaimed, and that concerns Jesus Christ. So, we can answer the question more clearly, what strength is being taught in this doxology? And that is the strength for salvation, the strength to save sinners. This is what God is to be prayed for. This is what the very content of the theme of this epistle is for. For I am not ashamed, chapter 1, verse 16, of the gospel. For it is the power of God to every, for salvation to everyone who believes. What is it? It is the power of God. For everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Only the gospel has the power to save, and it is God's gospel. Therefore, Paul is saying that God is to be praised for his grace, that is his power. When we see that he is able, we need to understand that it's him who makes us, who saves us. It's grace we're talking about here. He is to be praised for his grace provided for us in the gospel, for that is the means of our strengthening of our being strengthened unto salvation so what does this strength look like and this is what i said at the beginning this is actually why i decided to slow down at this final doxology i was going to just preach all one sermon finish last week but i decided to slow down because it's good as we come to the end of this with a doxology that relates to what paul has taught to be reminded of what he's taught. If we're strengthened to what end? If we're strengthened to the end of salvation, what does salvation look like? Well, in this epistle, Paul outlines what that salvation looks like. Remember, it's in God's strength. First, the gospel is the means of our justification. The word justification we use as that which God declares a sinner to be just. It's a forensic term. It's a legal term. And in fact, we believe that it has to do with God looking at sinners and declaring them just. How does he do that? How does God do that? The gospel is the means of our justification God pronouncing us just is only possible 
because of the gospel. Meaning it's only right, it's only righteous because of the gospel. Christ's righteousness, his death and resurrection are the means of a sinner's justification. Romans 3.20, I want to ask you to turn. I want you to, to go through these sections with us together. I'm not going to preach in detail on them, but I want you to see where our strength lies. First, the gospel is the means of our justification. Beginning in verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So if you're sitting there saying, Hey, I'm strong because I do what's right. No, you're not. You won't be saved by doing what's right. The works of the law. You hear that? Now, I'm going to say something later that you might think contradicts that. (laughs) But let us be clear. No one is saved because you have done enough to get into heaven. You cannot. You are not able to do enough to get into heaven. Anselm wrote, you cannot make the debt up of your failures by doing good. We, we can't make it right. When we have a debt and we just do what's right, say, say for instance, from, if I can explain it this way, from today, if you were perfect from this day on, that would only be what's required of you by the law. You can never make up what is your debt according to the law by your righteous deeds. That's very much how Paul argues here. By the works of the law, you will not be justified before God. That is part of your weakness. You won't be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, you'll know what kind of a sinner you are when you try to live according to the law. But the now, but now, and here's the good news, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's next week's sermon. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's strength. God attributing the righteousness of Christ as yours when you merely believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, are declared righteous by his grace as a gift. That's power through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by what? Faith, trusting in him. And that's a gift. That's a gift. And that's power. And that's God's doing. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what is he saying? The question that I asked at first. How can you as a sinner. How can God be right to judge you as a sinner righteous? 
because he declares you as a sinner righteous in the righteousness of his son. Because your sin was condemned in his son's death. And your righteousness is yours only in your relationship to the son and whether you trust him or not. Do you trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Then God is right. He is righteous to declare you justified. That is power. And God is to be praised for that. Apart from that, there's no salvation. There is no righteousness for sinners. Apart from Christ and his death on your behalf and his righteousness on your behalf, there is no justification for sinners. And then here's what tells us that this is God's doing. Then what becomes of your boasting? (laughs) Well, it ain't because you did it. If I could say it so clearly and properly, it's not because you did it. It's not in your power to do it, he's saying. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, that is, in Christ, apart from the law, apart from your own works. That boasting only being in the Lord is a demonstration that it is his power to justify you. It's in his ability, his right to do so. And us, we are merely the recipients of his strength there. Our justification then demonstrates God's power in these two ways. Christ paid for our sins. He paid the ransom for our sins. He was the propitiation. That word is that the wrath of God was transferred from us to him. He became the mercy seat whereby we are shown mercy. His blood paid for your sin, his life, his death. Secondly, Christ's righteousness is counted as your own. This is how, in the next chapter, Romans 4, 3, this is described. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham is that great figure of this justifying faith. And down in verse 23, he says, that's not just for him, it's for us. But the words it was counted to him, that is to Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, our justification is in God's work of salvation. It's in the Son's hands. It's in God's doing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not of your own doing. It's not a result of works, your works. It's by the grace of God. Second, the gospel in salvation. Now we're talking about salvation. Justification being that first aspect where the gospel shows the power of God. Second, the gospel is the means of our sanctification. 
We call it progressive sanctification. That is, we're being changed into the image of Christ slowly by slowly, 2 Corinthians says. From glory to glory. But it's every bit part of the power of God to save in the gospel as justification. Sanctification describes this ongoing process that because you look at yourself daily and you say, hey, I'm still a sinner. What about, am I still justified? I'm still, I've still sinned against God today. Have you loved God perfectly today? Any day last week, did you love him perfectly? How about your neighbor? Did you have only loving, righteous thoughts towards your neighbors last week? Then you're not perfect yet. In your practical lives, in the outworking of your faith, you're not perfect yet. But even that is strengthened by the gospel. Romans 5, 9 through 10. I find this text so remarkable in this regard. Now, Paul already says, he says here, you know, this is one of the big arguments in those who profess themselves Christians. Justification is, is a present declaration about your standing. If you're trusting in Christ, God declares you just now. Not, not merely future. It's an ongoing, it's a present perfect idea that this is always going to be the case. If God declares you just now, you are justified. Listen to what Paul says. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, it's exactly what we would expect, much more shall we be saved, that's future, ongoing future, by him from the wrath of God. Why? Why can you have that confidence? And I, and I believe he's getting at, if you still sin, how can you have that confidence that you are justified? Here's why. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, verse 8, if you go back to verse 8, that's that monumental text, whereby we know the love of God is ours, while we were yet in our sin, Christ died for us, right? That's how we were in that condition. But what about now? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now, much more certainly you should know, now that we are reconciled, justified, we shall be saved by his life. What does he mean, shall be saved by his life? I believe that's exactly what he means to pick up in chapter 6. What does shall be saved mean? It means the ongoing sanctification of your life. The ongoing pattern of you being cleansed or or. Remo the dead works that you used to do in your flesh, even the dead works of righteousness, to the purifying of your heart and those works being done in righteousness for the glory of God. And that pattern, that trajectory being wrought out, that progressive sanctification, the purifying work of the Holy Spirit, ongoing work that God has begun in you, it will continue. Why? Because Christ lives. And he's going to see that what he began in you, he will complete. Even the purifying of your life. What shall we say then? Chapter 6, verse 1. Follow along. I'm going to read through verse 14. I'm going to try not to comment a lot. What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How do we die to sin? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We died with him. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that that is for the end of which the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The purpose of our being crucified with him is not merely, then Paul says, to be justified, but it also is so that we would live, walk, if you could say, like him. And he says it here, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died, now this is important, if we have died with Christ by faith, and baptism being that demonstration, true faith, we believe that we will also live with him. Now What does that living mean? Certainly there's a future component to that. We will live with him in the resurrection, in the final resurrection. But this is how Paul applies this now. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Notice that imperative. Let not sin reign in you. That's the imperative for all of us, those who believe in Christ. Do not present your members to sin, your bodily members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. All of these are imperatives to those who have been brought from life to death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will not have dominion or rule over you, will have no dominion or rule over you. That's power. That's power. Listen, why is that? Since you are not under law, but under grace. So if the first question was this, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. God forbid. Why? Because that is not what grace is for. Grace is the power of God, if I could say it this way. It's the mercy of God on steroids. (laughs) It's God's mercy in you so that you will not be continuing in the deadness of the life you used to live. The life when you had no life, spiritually speaking. That's what Paul's point is. Why can we expect to obey this imperative, this ought? You ought not present your members of sin, right? He just said it several different ways there. Because you're under grace, because the power of God unto salvation rests on you, that's why you can 
expect the imperative to be lived out, that you will obey God and not sin. He goes on in further detail, but that's not always the way in experience that we find ourselves, is it? The Christian experience is not always that we sense that we are powerful over sin, right? Are, are we going to be honest with ourselves? I like to talk about what Paul deals with here as the trajectory of the Christian life. Now, trajectories can be put off course for a time. I absolutely believe that there are times in every Christian's life where we will backslide to some degree or another. But that is not the trajectory of salvation that God has saved us unto. That trajectory finally is moving forward in likeness to Christ, according to Scripture. But because we don't always experience that, I think God in his mercy has given us chapter 7. You have the Apostle Paul in chapter 7, after just giving us this victory speech about practical righteousness being a work of grace in our life, to say when Paul goes to chapter 7 says, we are not under the law anymore, we're under grace, but the law is not evil, and the law still has this function. It teaches me of my continual sinfulness. Do you hear that? I'm not going to go through all chapter 7. But Paul, he goes and he says, when I see the law, it seems to entice me to sin, even in this condition of, of new covenant. Grace. And so the question that we're often faced, Paul asks it. When you're, when you're struggling with sin, do you think, hey, that's cool. <laughs> I hope not. No Christian that I know is comfortable in their sin. No Christian that I know is comfortable in their sin. Listen to this, what he says. When he's faced with his own continual appetite for sin, even as a believer, this is what he says. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of death? This body of death. What is his answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. His trust when he is struggling with sin is the gospel, is Christ. It's the grace of God. Where does the grace of God come to us? In chapter 6, where does it come? In the death and resurrection of Christ. We don't leave it to be sanctified. We rest back ourselves in Christ and we say, he's the one. He's the means. And he goes on in chapter 8. We're just going to skip a bunch. Chapter 8, verse 8 through 14. How does Christ give us the victory in our struggles against sin? Well, Christ gives us the Holy Spirit, his spirit. Verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot. They're not able. They have no power to please God. You, however, he's speaking to Christians here, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, remember we talked about 
faith and unity with Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. That is power, ability, because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the strength of God. This is the hope of sanctification, and it's bound up in the gospel of God concerning his son. So then, brothers, we are not debtors not to live, we are debtors not to live to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. What's the trajectory of your life? Are you fighting against sin in your own power? You'll fail. You will fail. It's in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, whom we have as a gift by God when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sanctification cannot be won in our own power. We cannot become more like Christ by our own power, but it's the gospel influence in us, ongoing, that enables us to be more like Christ. Christ's indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the means. He's the, the power that enables us to please God with the way we live our life. And let me just remind you that apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. And that faith is union, union with God through Christ. Third, the gospel is the means or the power of our glorification. Glorification is that doctrine that describes the final, the end of our salvation, which is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Having no more sin, having no more alienation, even in our daily walk, no more grieving the spirit, it's final at that point. We are restored in full to the image of God and yet even more to the image of God's Son. Chapter 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's a key there. Because as we learn in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 John, the redemption of our bodies means that we are like him when we see him as he is. It's like his resurrected body. That's what we're going to be raised with. No hint of sin anymore in us. Listen, for in this hope, that final redemption, glorification, we, listen to this, were saved that work that god began in you and your justification we were saved for the end result to be assured our glorification now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees and then we go down to verse 28 and we all love and know these texts and we know that for those who love god that loving of god that sanctification that's God's work. That's his ongoing work. If you love God now, it's because he's 
continuing that work in you that he began. Those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Listen to that. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is eternity to eternity, God's purpose in salvation for his people. He foreknew you. He foreloved you. He calls you. That's that effectual, powerful calling to himself through Christ. The giving of faith. All the gifts of salvation are there included. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son in eternity. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, those who look like him. And those who he's predestined, he's also called. Those whom he's called, he's also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's certain. Our salvation is certain because it's in God's power. It's in God's power. The question on the heels of this salvation regards power, doesn't it? Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> Beloved, God should be praised for his power. His power is the only means of our salvation. And it is certain. And nobody can contend with God. If you are in Christ this morning, God's salvation is yours, and you can be assured that he is going to continue that salvation until the day of Christ's return, until your death. You will be with God, and you will be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy, pleasing to the Father in every aspect the great joy of the heart of a believer is the end for which we are being saved, that we would glorify God with every part of our being. You know, this summarizes, I think, best in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Turn there, please. I'm going to end here and then just with the doxology. I end here and I, and I bring this to your attention because everything is here laid out. Our weakness is here laid out. Our inability is here laid out. God's grace, his power is here laid out, not only to justify us, but to change us and to bring us to himself. This, everything is here laid out in 10 verses. I want you to see it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We're learning that in our home right now. Following the course of this world. This is what, this is what deadness looks like. In other words, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, that's who you were slaves to back in Romans 6. That's what that life looks like, that deadness looks like. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, evil spirit, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, Fit for judgment, in other words, like the rest of mankind. This is all of our condition. 
You and I here this morning are not here because we are better than anyone else. This is your condition. Here's God's power. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. That's that foreknowing love. That for loving us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What kind of power did you have in that transaction? Dead. You were walking in the other direction. The trajectory of the, the, the spirit of wickedness. I can't even remember what I just read here. You were following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air. That's where you were going. That's where I was going. God, in his rich mercy, when we were in that condition, he made us alive together. What's that called? What does he call that being made, that work of God which makes us alive? By grace you have been saved. That's why I say mercy is, or grace is mercy on steroids. Because grace is that power of God that sees to the change of our trajectory. That sees to the the change of our lives, in our eternity, in our everything. By grace you have been saved and raised us up. This is the end for it, but this is already true. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Go to, don't go there now, but later read Colossians 3. Read the results of that. There. What that means. Seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For eternity he might show us his power to save us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All of it is the gift of God. Your faith, salvation, beginning to end, your different life style, everything is a gift by the power of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, his workmanship, that's power, underlines that, created in Christ Jesus for good works. No longer following the course of this world which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And the end of this is that the glory of God is tied to his ability to save his people from their sins in every capacity, in every way that sin would have dominion over us. God is powerful and able to save you. So glory to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ.